So if you have never been with us um, for the last couple of weeks, and it's your first time, I need to just introduce you to the fact that we are doing a series on the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, we've termed the series called Restoration, Building Beyond Ourselves. And we've used the story and are busy using the story of a man called Nehemiah, of how God had called him from a foreign land to his own land. Because he was in exile, he was taken captive to another nation about 1,800 kilometers away from where his people had lived and where his city called Jerusalem was. And God gave him a heart to return to Jerusalem to go and rebuild the wall that had been broken down. And so we've, over the last probably nine weeks, we've been journeying through this book. And uh, I want to carry on this morning um, along this whole pursuit of seeing what we can learn from this man's life. And so as he arrived there, he started investigating the land, or the city rather, and noticed the condition of the walls, that it was completely broken down. And that really stirred his heart. He wanted to do something about it. He wanted to rebuild it. And he started introducing people to the need to have this thing rebuilt. And and people said, yeah, 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 we're ready. We would like to do it. And so Nehemiah 1 and Nehemiah 2 just reflects on that. And Nehemiah 3 We see how people had been allocated certain parts of the wall to rebuild. And they were walking and working side by side. And it was a great time. And they probably sang songs like, yes, we love you with the love of the Lord kind of stuff. And because we're working together and kumbaya, my Lord, kumbaya. And I don't know which songs they sang. But anyway, they must have sung a bit, sang a few songs. But what we find then in, in Nehemiah 3 is that everything seems to be so ordered and so in place and and it's all going well. It's hunky-dory, great great stuff is happening. But then, before we find that in Nehemiah 6, um, where we see that eventually this process is concluded and finished, that the wall was rebuilt in 52 days, we find it tucked in between Nehemiah 3, everybody working nicely together, Nehemiah 6, where everything is done. We find a few verses and a chapter or two tucked in between that deals with a wonderful thing called opposition. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about overcoming opposition. How we are able to, no, that's opposition. Oh, overcoming rejection. Oh, should I change the title? The title says rejection, so I'm going to have to change the sermon. Anyway, no, it's overcoming opposition, all right? Because we find that in those chapters, chapters 4 and 5, there's a lot of that that happens. and, And we find that in life that truly happens too. So I want to know if there's... Maybe Aiden, I can use you. If you could just come to the front, I just want to illustrate a little bit of what opposition looks like. Why don't you just come here? You've got to have both hands open. And why don't you just go stand there? Um, and, and I'm going to go here like this, and, and you're going to do the same. Because I want you to look that way, because if I'm, I cause pain upon you, then people won't notice it. All right, and embarrassment and that kind of stuff. Is that okay? So don't, don't, don't make him feel bad because he may lose. So you can, you can be, try to be strong than that, and a little bit more. <laughs> so we're trying to wrestle each other. Can I'm positioning myself and look at him. He's changing his legs too. We're noticing that there's some opposition that 
You feel it? Yes. It's strong, hey? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I see. <laughs> He's sweating. Look at him, ladies and gentlemen. I'm just talking still. Why are you sweating so much? All right, you check there. <laughs> the moment I push, then he's pushing you. He's pushing you. But don't do that. Don't embarrass me now. It's my, it's my illustration. So anyway, there's opposition here. And, and slowly but surely, opposition is either increasing or decreasing. Anyway, great illustration. Thank you. Let him, give him a hand, ladies and gentlemen. He did that unrehearsed. <laughs> Point is, we live in life where we face opposition. And I want to just take you to two, through two points this morning. What opposes God's work and, and how do we deal with this then? Because there's something that you and I are pursuing that someone or something is opposing. How many of you know that on a Sunday morning, for instance, when you want to come and just be with God's people, you don't always find it easy to wake up and get out, particularly winter coming, there's going to be some opposition, isn't it? Uh-huh. When you want to do the right thing, you find that there's often opposition that comes, isn't it? Like, how many of you love reading the Bible? See, there's some very spiritual ones here in the front row. Ladies and gentlemen, let's give them a hand. No, the point is, anything in life that is good doing and it's worth doing has a form of opposition to it. Uh-huh. And it's like training your body to get fit. It doesn't come naturally. There's opposition to it. And particularly... In our walk with God, there's definitely opposition that comes. And we find that in the story of Nehemiah. So won't you take up your Bibles now and turn in that device that you call phone and use it for something good at least this morning. Um, it's in Nehemiah 4. Or it's, yeah, it's in Nehemiah 4, but we're going to read from a few verses just to introduce you. Because I want to introduce you to four things that opposes God's work. And the first one is people. <laughs> just look at the people right next to you and tell them, don't worry, we're not talking about you. We're talking about other people. All right, just, just kind of uh, make that clear. The first thing that we find is that people oppose the work of God. In, in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 10, we are introduced to some gentlemen. And it says in verse 10, now, Nehemiah is around in Jerusalem, and he's wanting to do some work. It says, but when Sanballat, say with me, Sanballat, Sanballat, all right? So, so Sanballat is a guy. He's a horror knight. Gee, that's a wonderful title there. Sanballat, your horror knight. And um, Tobiah the Ammonite, they heard of this. It displeased them greatly. We also read in 2 verse 19, it says, What when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, servant, and now the team is getting bigger, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us. So how do you know that there's a little bit of opposition that came there? It's like they, uh, Nehemiah's wanting to do something, but there's an arm that's wrestling him. It's like, hey, nobody, you're not going to just have your way in our place. So people opposed him. And then his name reappears in this chapter that we want to focus on. It says, verse 1 of chapter 4, Now when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, now not only does he jeer and is displeased, it says he is angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered, not cheer, there's a difference, eh? Cheering and jeering. One is for, the one is against. He was jeering at the Jews. And he further, in chapter 6, he tries to deceive Nehemiah from accomplishing what God had called him to do. 
I want to introduce you to a bigger picture this morning. That it is very real that people come, as we see with these guys, Sanballat and Gershom and Tobiah, just three names that are trying to oppose what Nehemiah, by God's divine instruction, was called to do. But behind Sanballat and Tobiah and Gershom is another opponent. His name actually means that he is our enemy. So behind all of that, behind every person that, that perhaps jeers you and, and, and does not support your pursuit of God and the, and the right values, is another one. And his name is Satan. And we're not here to give any credit to him. I'm just here to explain to you that the name Satan means adversary. Satan, his name indicates that he is our enemy. He doesn't like you. Just wanted to break that news to you this morning. You have an enemy that hates you. And he will try in his utmost to wrestle you in your pursuit of God. In your pursuit of righteousness and of right living. And of doing what you believe in God is the right thing to do. We see it here. He just arrives, Nehemiah, in Jerusalem, comes to do a good work. But there are people that oppose him. And we find it repeated every now and again. And these guys were used, I believe, by the devil to oppose the work of God. Now, take some time quickly and go, to me, or go with me to the book of Ephesians, could we? So I need to just bring this into perspective and help you understand where does all of this fit in. Ephesians chapter 6. We've got to understand that when people oppose us, that it's not really them. And opposition comes in various ways. But let me just read to you this in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. All right? I just have my water. It was here somewhere. It disappeared. Uh, anyway. Oh, thank you. Gee, you can, have a, you can have some if you really want to. You don't have to take it. Jeez. Somebody just get um, Quentin a bottle of water as well. We find that in Ephesians 6, Paul is writing about this very principle. It says in verse, um, chapter 6, verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of... Your boss? Huh? Your wife? Your husband? The government? No? May be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil, Satan, adversary, opponent, enemy. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of the present darkness, um, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Paul is just encouraging us about a simple thing called spiritual warfare. We know about physical warfare. We, we read up about all the armory and all the stuff that people have used in history. But this is a different kind of a warfare. That the opposition that you and I experience is not someone fighting us. There's something behind it. And Nehemiah experienced the opposition that came through three people, but there was someone behind that. And it's not the day of the devil. This is that times 
People allow the devil to use them. I trust that none of you have ever been used like that <laughs> by the devil to fight what God is doing in somebody else's life. For instance, jealousy, my friend, could be a way in which the devil would use you to oppose what is happening in someone else's life. Someone is growing in the Lord, for instance, and you, oh, gee, look at that guy. He's trying to put himself to the front. Oh, no, no, he's done this in church or done that or, or was given. And, and, and in your heart, there's a jealousy that comes. And so God wants to help us see that behind all of these things, there's an enemy that uses people. And so we need to understand that sometimes people are used. And best we not become an instrument of the devil to be used by him. 1 Peter 5, I've got to take you there as well. Please write this down. Such an important scripture, this, that we need to read together. 1 Peter 5 and verse 8 to 9 says the following. Likewise you. No, that's not the right one. That's verse 5. Verse 8 says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil. See it there? Prowls around like. He isn't a roaring lion, by the way. He isn't a lion that can come and devour. He appears like one. And sometimes we get afraid of the one who appears like a lion. But he's not really the lion. He just makes a noise of a lion. Like, he comes around roaring like it, seeking someone to devour. It's amazing. That's his strategy. Peter writes further on. He says, resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This is not unique to one person or to others. This is what's happening constantly across the world, that we have an enemy, his name is the devil, and he at times would even use people. So let's not fight one another. Let's just understand that there's something. If you get hurt by an individual, don't say, well, you devil, you. Look at what you've done. You've hurt me. Just consider the fact that we all are frail and weak, and we often make mistakes, and sometimes we even hurt people. And, and in that I'm not saying that you're obsessed by the devil. It's just we could cause harm to others. And that's why we need to forgive and walk away. So the first thing that we find that opposes God's work is people, but it's really our adversary. The second thing I want to do is just a couple of P's this morning. The first P is people. The second P is pride. Now, Sanballat, this guy in the story of Nehemiah, could not imagine that the once defeated Jews would be given the privilege of having their own place that is protected. <laughs> he, he despised the fact that the Jews could come back and be given dignity again, an identity in this place called Jerusalem. And in his heart, there was something that stood up against it. And he says, not over my dead body will I allow this. Pride in his heart resisted that idea of someone else being blessed by God question we need to ask ourselves is when I see somebody else being blessed do I rejoice with them as the Bible says I should or am I jealous or does it rise up in some sort of an anger in me like oh, they don't deserve that look at their lifestyle look at this and look at that the psalmist actually in the book of Psalms we find that often the psalmist says oh I envy the wicked because everything seems to be going so well with them 
Uh-huh. You ever read that? It's like, wow, look at them. They've got everything going for them. But he says, the one thing I do, I take myself into the presence of God so that those thoughts will be dealt with by him and not by my own pride and jealousy. So pride, folks, as the Bible says in Proverbs 16, verse 18, it goes before destruction. Pride comes before a fall. And um, we need to understand that pride in our hearts, which is an internal thing, could become such a destructive force and oppose the work of God in our lives. God says, if you humble yourselves, I receive you. But if you are proudful and full of pride, it resists me. So something internal. We just spoke about something external, people, the devil. Now there's something internal that can happen. And it's the pride in my heart that will say no to the work of God. No to the ways of God. No to rebuilding that which needs to be rebuilt. Oh, what, does need to, what needs to be rebuilt in my life? I'm fine. Look at me. I'm okay. Are you? Well, the fact that we're saying it perhaps are an indication already that I need God to work in my life. Isn't it? Pride is such a destructive thing. And pride is definitely something that opposes God and opposes the work of God in our lives. So how do we overcome that opposition? The Bible says, humble yourself. Humble yourself. And in each one of our lives, it could be something specific that God may call on us to do and to be. But humility would overcome the opposition of pride. The third thing that we find could become a huge opposition against the work of God is the third P, and that's perception, which really is the thought patterns that we have. Again, the opposition in Nehemiah, they had a specific thought pattern that was incredibly discriminatory towards the Jews, and it had all the potential to derail the work of God. They tried to stop the Jews from having their own again. It wasn't about a wall. I mean, seriously, they could benefit from the wall themselves. They were living there too. Uh-huh. So what is it? What's the issue then? If it's not about the wall or they were building, rebuilding the temple too. No, they were saying, no, they don't deserve this. They can't have it because the way that I look at them makes me not want to let them have anything of God upon their lives. And thought patterns and ideas can often become major powers of resistance against the Word of God. That's why Paul says to us in Romans 12, verse 2, he says, Guys, do not be conformed to this world, because the way that the world operates, the worldly pattern, the worldly way of doing things, is against the way that God wants it to happen. So he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? By relocating somewhere where there won't be those thought patterns. <laughs> yeah, let me just go to Mauritius. Because I think in Mauritius, people think differently. Because they have the beach all the time and they just have clear minds. They're not surrounded. We don't even have a beach here in Zimbabwe. Come on. We have Kariba. But I mean, it's so hot up there. Who can think up there when they go there? Seriously. Huh? Those are Caribbeans that love going up there. I, I mean, bless your souls. I just don't think that you can. But anyway, the point is, a location doesn't change the way we work and function. It is the mind that needs to be renewed. So Paul says to us clearly, guys, you live in this world where there are various perceptions 
Various thought patterns about your future, about who you are, about who your people are, about what this country is and should be and, should, and isn't. And those thought patterns govern the way that you live. Because they come sit here, they camp. Paul says, don't allow that to camp in your mind. Be renewed by what? By the truth that you read about God. We need to understand that even though we become born again, that there are old patterns and ways of thinking that we hold on to that oppose the work of God in our lives. And I wish we had the time to, in a sense, elaborate on this a bit. Because maybe, and I would dare to say, because it's in my life and I think it'll be in all of our lives, that I constantly have to identify those thoughts that come up, that oppose the work of God in my life, who what he says about me is opposed by what I think about myself and what others say. Very interesting that when you study and just understand the place where Jesus was crucified, Golgotha, it's actually the name of that means the place of skull. It's quite interesting that Jesus was crucified in a place that quite clearly refers to our brain or our minds, isn't it? That maybe the thing that needs to be crucified in our lives is the way we think and our thought patterns, the perceptions that we have, because they oppose the work of God in our lives. Let me illustrate. I'm never good enough. Where does that come from? <laughs> it's not a little piece of paper that you picked up and... And just read and, oh, I'm never good enough. That doesn't make sense. It's a thought pattern that we have. Uh-huh. Just never good enough. I've got to try harder and harder to earn respect and to be appreciated. I'm a failure. Where does that come from? It's a thought pattern. It's not just a moment. It's something that you've started believing about yourself. Huh, I'm just a sinner. <laughs> Who are you? I'm saved, but I'm just a sinner. No, does that... Come from God's word where it says that, you know what, I've saved you, you've, you've been redeemed, you, your mind, and yeah, by the way, you're a sinner. Now, when the Father speaks of you, He speaks fondly of us. And he, and he reiterates so often through the word that you are His, that you are His beloved child, son and daughter. Oh, I'm not safe and, and, and we're always in danger and nothing good will come our way. Where does that thought pattern come from? It's something that has been set in your mind. You've allowed it to camp there. And that's what produces anxiety and fear and worry and stress. Where? From the mind. And God cannot take care of us. You know, this is Zimbabwe, you know. I don't have a future. This is Zimbabwe, you know. And, and look at the way that things have gone. God doesn't care. Just all the signs are there. God doesn't care. Where does that come from? Does it come from the truth of, of what God says? Or do you base it on the, on the circumstances that you face and, and the thought patterns that others have and that you start believing yourself? I was chatting to somebody yesterday and, and he was saying that this one friend of ours, mutual friend that we have, was, had, had come off his bike again, he says. It's like he fell again in like a couple of stitches on his arm. But he said, you know what the interesting thing is? He's so negative all the time. It's probably why these things are happening to him. It's like, oh, okay. You know, but 
it's in a sense it's true. We we become so bogged down with stuff that our thought patterns become so negative that we inflict things on ourselves almost. It's unbiblical when we have thought patterns that oppose the work of God. And we need to confront it through repentance and move away from it. The last P is the one that produces so much um, doubt, and it's the word pessimism. I had to find one that goes with P. (laughs) Doubt wouldn't fit. But the word pessimism produces doubt, negativity, hopelessness. The sand ballot continue to try and dissuade the Jews that they would not be able to complete the job, that they were unable and not good enough. That's what he was saying to them. You read it in chapter 4, how he doesn't just do one thing. Let me read it to you. Would, would you mind listening? It says, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. Verse 2 says, and he said in the presence of his brothers. Now he goes public, all right? So he's not just, he's not just addressing the Jews. He goes with the other brothers there because he wants to publicly belittle them. He says, in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, Samaria, he says, what are these feeble Jews doing, these pathetic Jews? What are they doing? Asking these questions. Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn um, ones at that? <laughs> and then Tobiah, he kind of pitches in as well. So I'm like, I've got to say something too. Man, I mean, we're on a roll. This is really nice. Let's just discriminate against them and discourage them. And I, I want to say something too. And Tobiah says, yeah, yeah, kind of like humoristic. He says, what they are building, <laughs> if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. <laughs> That's what he's trying to just mock them with. The guys, you are such poor builders. When we get a little animal on top of it, the whole thing is going to collapse. What are they trying to do? They're just sowing doubt. They're just sowing it and bringing hopelessness, trying to. And boy, imagine if we do this. How many, how many conversations that we have during the week where we are hopeful, full of faith, no doubt, no pessimism, positive about who God is, about His plans for our future and for our country? How many of those conversations do we have against the other conversations that oppose what God is doing in our lives and in our nation? Doubt leads to fear. And a fear-stricken church cannot help a scared world. Let me say that again. A fear-stricken church cannot help a scared world. And so if we constantly are engaged in pessimism and, and negative thinking and negative conversations, what do we have to offer to the world? We have nothing. You can come and say Jesus left, right, and center, but in your heart, there's something missing. And so how do we deal with this opposition? And I'm going to just mention a few things. And I want to take it from the life of Jesus. And we're going to run through some verses. And I want you to take note of these verses and to go and study them and go read them and just consider how Jesus did it. We want to, first of all, the way to deal with opposition, we want to consider Jesus. 
How did Jesus do it? How many of you know that Jesus faced opposition? Uh Uh-huh. I mean, that was real for him. It wasn't simple. It wasn't easy. We know that the opposition seemingly overcame him and crucified him. Uh Uh-huh. But how many of you know that the opposition didn't last? After three days, he rose again. That's what we celebrate constantly, not just over Easter. But in Hebrews 12, verse 3, it says this. Consider him. Say with me, consider him. Consider him. Why do we consider him? Because it says further on in verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility. How many of you know hostility is opposition? Huh? All right? It's the kind of thing that we experience in various ways. Hostility. He has experienced such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So that who? You. You and I. So we consider Jesus who experienced this incredible hostility so that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted, but be encouraged. And so if we look at the life of Jesus, we see how he dealt with opposition. Just a couple of things that I want to mention to you. The first thing is that Jesus, in dealing with opposition, he applied scripture. Jesus was was tempted by the devil, by the opponent, by the adversary. We know the story. The first thing that Jesus experienced after being released by God to go and preach now is that he was tempted by the devil. And in that moment, he applies scripture. He says, the word of God says, the word of God says that. And when the devil came with all sorts of temptations, which we're not going to go into now, but in Matthew 4, we see how Jesus applies Scripture and how do you and I should do the same. It's like, take Scripture, take the Word of God, because this is your truth. This is your armor. So when those thoughts come into this mind, how do we deal with them? We apply Scripture. Jesus did. So should you and I. The second thing that Jesus does, Jesus was firm. It's like, no ways. I'm not going to allow this thing to happen. This opposition that comes. And it's the story of Peter. Peter is like this man that's just walking around with Jesus and, and, and just saying, Jesus, you're amazing. You're the son of God. And the next moment, Jesus hears Peter say, because Jesus said, listen, I'm going to be killed and I'm going to be crucified. Jesus is, is just sharing with him the story of what's coming. Peter no way. Uh-uh. Time out. No way, Jesus. That cannot be done to you. There's opposition to the will of God. Uh-huh. And guess what? The will of God was not, hey, I want to take you to this great, wonderful place where me, Jesus, we just, I'm just going to sit and I'm just going to rule from the mountains and I'm going to just be treated by the Father. And Peter were like, no way. That's a great idea. We won't oppose that. What we want to oppose is you being taken away, you being killed. And Jesus said to him, get behind me, my opponent. Because the word Satan that he uses there is the word adversary. So Jesus says to Peter, and he's firm. He says, no ways, Peter. You're not going to stop me. And by the way, Peter, it's actually not you who's trying to stop me. The devil because he's trying to get me out of the will of God. He thinks that he's going to crucify me. But actually, I'm in for something much bigger. So Jesus is firm here. And sometimes we need to be firm, folks. We 
You need to be firm in what you believe is right and not go around and just rebuking people left, right, and center, you know? Like, oh, you're waiting in the queue, yeah, I mean, just rebuke you. Get out of the queue because I've got to be there first. No, that's the wrong way to be firm, but firm in your faith. And just say, when people come and say negative things and try to stop you from pursuing the God direction that you want to go, and people try to dissuade you, say, uh-uh. Sometimes we're so afraid to offend people, and in the process we deny God. Rather offend people, never deny God. Be firm. The third thing we see that Jesus does is, he's about to be crucified, Matthew 26, and you can take down these verses and but Jesus find time to pray. And that's a lifestyle thing for Christ, by the way. This is not just a formula. This is a lifestyle where I run to the Father and I say, God, I'm facing some stuff here. And I need your perspective. And I need your advice. I need your help. And so Jesus does that. Jesus sought peace in Matthew 26, verse 48. We know the story. Jesus is about to be arrested. Judas comes, and Judas says, well, the one that I kissed, that's the one that you need to arrest. <laughs> and Jesus receives this kiss of betrayal from Judas, and the guys arrest him. And Peter, <laughs> the man of the hour, he's like, no way. He's just been rebuked, but he still hasn't learned his lesson. He's like, no way, stop him. He takes a sword, and he cuts the guy's ear off, one of the, the soldiers. I'm like, gee, that's good, actually. I wonder who he was aiming for the ear. You know, but anyway, he just cuts the guys. And like, Peter, don't, buddy. This is part of God's will for me. And so let's handle this in peace. So the way that we deal with opposition often is just be at peace. Be at peace, knowing that God is in control. We also see that Jesus remained silent. And further on in that verse, where Jesus was now confronted by the by the rulers and saying, hey, who do you say you are? And tell us more about it. Jesus just kept quiet. He was secure in himself. Sometimes we're so insecure that when opposition comes, we, we want to defend ourselves and we want to attack the other person, isn't it? I'll, I'll tell you who you are, who I am. Let me just give, get a moment of, to defend myself. Jesus is like completely silent. <laughs> He's secure in himself. We see on the cross even, Luke 23, where he's with these two other criminals. And the, and the soldiers are there mocking him and spitting at him. We see that Jesus loved. Jesus just simply loved. And they were saying, oh, well, if you're the son of God, why don't you just call you know, these, 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 these things to happen and, and you to be freed and, and you can rescue yourself. Come on. And Jesus just loved them. Sometimes the most strongest opposition that we can present to any form of attack that comes our way is love. Because love will never fail. Love never fails. And then lastly, we see that Jesus stayed focused. And we go back to Hebrews 12, verse 2, where it says, as we consider him, we also look to him, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We overcome opposition by staying focused on what we're called 
to be. Not firstly to do. Oh, I've got to be that. I, no, nothing's going to deter me from being the best teacher that the world has ever seen. Now, I think our first objective is li- in life is to become more like Jesus Christ. And anything that opposes that pursuit, we don't allow it to deter us, to distract us. We say, God, I want to stay focused on that. And there are various things that will come. You know that. But we stay focused. Jesus, it says of, who for the joy that was set before him, the joy, the focus of fulfilling the Father's will, of rescuing a whole world, that joy, he endured all these things because he had that focus. And we have a similar focus to please the Father. I pray this morning that our hearts will be open to understand that in whatever situation you are in, whatever opposition you are facing, whether it's external or whether it's internal, I, I would dare to say that each one of us face opposition. If we're not, then somehow the devil is not threatened by you. And maybe the name of Jesus Christ is not on your lips and the nature of Jesus is not in your heart. And if we're not, then the devil doesn't bother us. But the moment we start, and I've seen it so many times, the moment people say yes to Jesus, not just through their lips, but from their hearts, the adversary takes notice of that. Many times people have said, well, you know, it's been a week since I've given my life to the Lord. It's been the worst week ever. Why? Suddenly I have opposition. Suddenly I'm a threat to the enemy. And so when our lives count for God, The enemy takes notice of that, and he wants to oppose. But don't give up. Don't give in. Stay focused. Deal with it. Just look at the simple ways in which Jesus dealt with it. And let our hearts remain focused on who he is. So let's pray together. Father, I thank you this morning. For your grace. I thank you that in you we have such great purpose. And that Lord together as we pursue you we are strengthened. And as we just look at the life of Nehemiah They didn't allow the opposition to stop him. Because we know this story, Lord God, and how they carry on and how they weren't overcome by the enemy, by these people that try to stop them. We thank you that in our lives, similarly, Lord God, you call us not to give up, not to surrender to the opposition that comes. And this morning I pray that our hearts will be strengthened before you even as we face opposition. That we will not give in, we will not give up, we will not surrender to the plans of the Sanballats and the Tobias and the Gershoms that may want to stop us. And neither 
Lord God, the pride in our own hearts, the perceptions that we live with, the thought patterns that are against your will, or the pessimism, Lord God, that so easily just govern our way of thinking. Pray that none of those things, Lord God, will be allowed in our lives to oppose you and your work in us. And just now as we sit like this, Father, I thank you. Holy Spirit, you will make us more aware of who you are. More aware of who you are. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that this is just a moment for us to reflect on you.